morning, I want to uh, just lead us in a study of this section of Scripture for a few minutes this morning, uh, beginning in Titus 2 and verse 11. So let's read that to begin with and kind of introduce where we're going to go. Titus 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. At the heart of this text is the idea that grace changes us. Grace is, of course, the idea of a gift, something given to you that you don't deserve. And some gifts are so important and so big that they change you. And the only right way to receive this kind of gift is to allow it to change the way you live going forward. So I thought about some examples as I was working through this idea uh, my stepdad was given by his parents a, a very nice silver trombone. And when he married my mom, I was about 12 years old, and I played the trombone, and he decided he was going to give me this beautiful trombone to a 12-year-old. And we had to have a talk about how you take care of the trombone and how you handle the trombone and the things you don't do with the trombone. Well... Uh, Noah's about to join the band this next year. He decided he wanted to play the trombone, and that silver trombone is still around, and uh, they brought it down to him last weekend. So exciting. But you know what? When we give Noah the trombone, we have to have the talk, okay? Because this is a nice instrument, and it needs to be taken care of. It's a gift. It's not that he has to pay anything or, you know, he has to take care of it in order to get it. It is instead, it's only appropriate to handle a gift that way. Maybe if if uh, when you're a teenager, your parents gave you or lent you a car, there were was, there was some expectations that went along with that. If you're going to have a car, you're going to have to take care of the car. You're going to have to clean out the car, okay, that kind of thing. You're not going to drive the car too fast. You're going to have it home at a certain time. All of that, um, that comes along with a gift. Or when a couple entrusts their daughter to a man to be married, there are some expectations. It's a gift in that sense. They give her away, and yet there are some expectations about how that should go from that point forward. So what I'm getting at is that it's not just the gift that matters. The gift is so valuable that there is a life change that's appropriate when you receive that gift. So look again at verse 11 with me. In verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There is the gift. Verse 12, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's gift is so great that it brings changes. And I want us to think for a few minutes about how that works. When we receive the gift of salvation from God, how that should change us. How should a life touched by the goodness of God look? In particular, it seems to me that we have trouble with the idea of grace. Grace is such a theological type word. And so we can say, you know, there are all these big words that go along with that. And we talk about grace. And I think sometimes we have a hard time saying, well, what should that look like? How should that change me on a daily basis? How should I be different? And I want us to think about that because that's exactly the message Paul is giving to Titus. He wants Titus to be teaching to the people he's working with what grace looks like every day. And I want us to think about that for ourselves. So first of all, grace teaches us what to renounce and what to pursue. 
that there are certain things that are off limits and certain things that should be our focus now that we've received the gift. So what's happening in the book of Titus is that Titus has been sent by Paul to Crete, and he has some things that he has to work on. Particularly, he wants him to appoint elders in every city. And there are some th people that are going around teaching things they shouldn't teach. Elders are going to help with that, and Titus is going to help with that. But if you look back in verse 1 of chapter 2, Titus 2 and verse 1, he says, But as for you, contrasted with these other teachers, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound is a word that means healthy. It's doctrine that's pure and right, as opposed to doctrine that's going to lead people astray, like he talked about in chapter 1. But then he fleshes out, here's what that should look like, Titus. Here's what you should be teaching. Verse 2, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You can see how he's about to go through the different groups by ages, and he's going to kind of break down the demographics. Older men, he says, are to have a certain tone. They are to be dignified. They are to be disciplined. They are serious-minded. They understand that there are things about life that demand their focus and attention, and they're going to give those things that matter their focus and attention. They are in control of their spirits and their impulses. They have been trained. And so older men are to be an example in that way. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So older women show their reverence for God by the way that they act. He talks specifically about they are reverent in their behavior, self-controlled in their speech. They're not slanderers and self-controlled in their impulses. He's mentioned specifically wine, which makes me think that perhaps there was an issue there. Maybe that was part of the culture on the island of Crete uh, having to do with wine, maybe even uh, wine and older women. But instead of those kinds of vices, he says, they live the gospel and they teach the gospel. He says in verse 4 at the end that they are, in verse 3 at the end, they are to teach what is good. And verse 4, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. So they are to teach good things to the younger women. And now we have some expectations for the younger women. That the younger women love their husbands and children. They do their family work with joy, and they do it from the heart. Even though that kind of work has never really been glamorous, first century or today, that is something still they do sincerely out of service to God. They should be self-controlled and pure, verse 5. They are careful about what they do and what they say. They are careful about involving themselves in things that could corrupt them, and they are careful to make family their priority, submit to their husbands, and they're careful so that when they show the kind of character they should have, nobody has any bad words to say about Christ or the church because of them. Verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Isn't that interesting? That's all it says about younger men. It's as if the whole battle is won or lost here. Okay, self-controlled. I, I only have one thing, but it's a big thing. Teach them to be self-controlled. They are to be in control of their bodies and their minds and their mouths. They are to be in control following the example of those older men and, of course, the older women. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. This is specifically to Titus. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Titus is an example, both in his personal conduct who he is, and in his teaching, that his teaching is done carefully and with dignity and with integrity and with sound speech. You've got to watch the way you talk when you're a teacher. And that's going to require personal devotion from Titus and careful attention from Titus. Verse 9, 
Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So even servants are addressed in this little speech he's giving Titus about all the different groups. And he says they are to be submissive. They are to be ones who try to please their masters. They are to be fully trustworthy, not to argue, not to steal, And he says that's how they put on or wear the teaching of God. That they wear God's teaching by serving their masters in the right kind of way. Now, so you got all that in your mind. It's a lot of information, a lot of groups. But the question is, why? Why do Christian people live this way? And the answer comes in verse 11 as specifically related to grace. In verse 11, for... That's a because word here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace has appeared and it teaches us. It trains us. God's grace is not just a gift that you receive and you say, wow, that's great. I'm going to move on now and do whatever I want. It is instead a gift that changes you so that now you want to live in a different way. He also says in verse 14, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus gave Himself to not only redeem us from sin, you saw that in the first part of verse 14, but also to purify for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. This whole sacrifice is not just about getting rid of old sin. It's about transforming us into a different kind of person. That's the whole point of grace. So the logic is very simple. If God has given me this incredible gift, if God has saved me from my sins, I should quit sinning. I can't sin after the grace because if I do, I haven't really been changed by the gift. If God wants me to live in a better way and God sent his son to accomplish that, then I should pursue the better way. That's the whole point of this passage. Now, there are some very clear specifics to that. Particularly, I think you can see in the passage, the thread that runs through it all is the thread of self-control. That in every age group, every job, every gender, everybody needs to be self-controlled. And that's going to be a choice that comes from both renouncing certain things, because self-control says some things are off limits, some things I shouldn't do. But it's also going to be there are some things I pursue that I need to put my time and attention and energy into. And grace teaches me that. Because grace says if God loves me enough to buy me out of my sins and make me into a new person, my job is pretty simple. I need to follow the will of a God who loves me that much. I need to pursue self-control. So that's going to mean that I learn to say to myself in practical situations, no, Jesus doesn't want that for me. No, that person does not belong to me. No, that doesn't lead to good places for me. And what we're doing when we say that is we are saying, I know what it costs to buy me out of my sins, and I want to accept that gift well. Grace changes me because it teaches me what to renounce and what to pursue. Second, grace leads us to wait for the appearing of Jesus. Look in verse 12 with me. Titus 2 and verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we renounce and pursue, like we've talked about, he says in verse 12 at the end there, we do that in the present age. And that term, the present age, strongly implies that things will not always continue to be the way they are right now. It's the present age, but it's not the forever age. There is another age to come. And along with that comes the idea of waiting. We're in verse 13 now. In verse 13, he says, waiting for our blessed hope. We are anticipating the fulfillment of our hope. So what he is saying here is that God's grace has appeared. That is the person of Jesus. It appeared, but that's not the end of the story. There is more grace to come. There is a greater fulfillment of what has begun to be shown by Jesus coming to earth. And that's just the beginning of how he will show his grace to us. In fact, it's very interesting because in verse 13, this word appearing, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, is the same word as in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. Do you know what that means? That means that just as certainly as Jesus came to earth and lived as a man and died for our sins and rose from the dead, that just as certainly as that appearing happened, there is another appearing to happen. It's the same word. Just like Jesus came, he will come. Just like he appeared, he will appear. So we wait. And grace teaches us how to wait for Jesus. Now he talks about in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What is the hope? Well, in Titus specifically, hope is tied to the words eternal life. Turn the page back to chapter 1. In Titus 1 and verse 2, it says... In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And in chapter 3 and verse 7, chapter 3 and verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the hope is hope of eternal life, which, by the way, we're not going to open this whole can of worms today, but eternal life is not merely existence. Eternal life is eternal blessing and communion with God. It is being in the presence of God. It is knowing God. We will know God and we will know Jesus in a fuller way when he appears again. We will see him as he is, John says. We will be like him. And yes, that also implies that we will be transformed into bodies that are different from this body, bodies that do not die, something eternal. And we will live with God forever and faith will become sight. So grace teaches us that's what's next And we need to be ready for it and waiting for it. Now, what does that have to do with grace? I think the idea here is about loyalty. That we don't just receive a gift and say, oh, great, a gift. I've got a little gift box over there, you know, and you unwrap it. Oh, a gift, great. And then, all right, I get to enjoy this now. It is instead something where if we receive a gift maturely, then we understand a gift is a statement about a giver wanting to show love to us, wanting to deepen a relationship with us. That a gift is just a sign of the relationship. That's all. The gift is not the important part. The relationship with the giver is the important part. So, even though we don't see him at the moment... That gift is a down payment and a promise of future blessing and future gifts. And if we are going to receive that and relate to the giver, then we're going to say, I'm going to wait for him to do what he has promised. Peter says this. This is 1 Peter 1.13. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you. Not the grace that's already happened. We know what that's about when Jesus came to earth. But there's another grace that's yet to come. And that's what we await. So grace says, this is just the beginning. There's more grace to come. And if I want to receive from God all that he wants to give me, then I have more to wait for. So grace teaches me to wait for the appearing of Jesus. Grace also motivates us to good works. Look in Titus 2 and verse 14. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the first part of that is he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, all the bad stuff we had done. And then he has helped us not only to be forgiven of that, but he has wanted to create a new kind of people who have a new kind of passion. They are zealous to do good where before they were zealous to do evil. They have been changed. So Paul, and this is particularly powerful in Titus. You can see it all over the place in Titus. Paul keeps telling Titus, you tell our people to keep doing good works. In fact, he says it so often, it makes me wonder if there was a problem on Crete where people just weren't doing anything because there are so many references to this. Look at them with me. Look at verse 7. Titus 2 and verse 7, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. On and on it's going to go. By the way, down in uh, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Talk about that more in just a moment. But it's just all over the place here. Now, I do need to say this. And Paul makes this distinction clearly. These good works are not the basis of our salvation. Things that we do after we've been saved are not what make us right with God. In fact, things that we did before we were saved didn't make us right with God. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 with me. Titus 3 and verse 4. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, just read that as grace, when grace appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now he says specifically, this is in verse 5, that grace appeared not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't act so well that God said, well, I guess I have to send Jesus now. I mean, Jacob's just too good. I can't leave him down. I'm doing all those good works. Look at him i got to send Jesus. Grace is the idea that we didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. And Jesus came anyway. So we need to understand, it was in spite of our works that God sent Jesus. This is not something we will ever deserve or earn. In fact, the idea of earning grace is a contradiction in terms. It doesn't work. You don't earn gifts. If you earn them, they're not gifts. If their gifts are not earned, that's the whole point. So we need to understand that about good works. Good works are not something that we did to bring Jesus. They're not something do now that we do now to pay him back. We're not going to be able to pay him back. That's not the picture. That's not the idea. We don't do so many good things now that it makes up for what we did before. That's not in Scripture. 
instead. We need to understand that God saved us because God chose to do it. Now, that can involve us doing things that he says. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying it's not as a result of us doing so much good that he had to do it. However, when you get all of that settled, I think we have to acknowledge that in the same breath that Paul says we're not saved because we're so good, he then says, verse 8, verse 8 of chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So in the same breath, he says, keep doing good works. Now, I know that that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come because of your good works, but he did come to produce a people who wanted to do good works. That's the whole point. So verse 14, chapter 3. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Grace teaches us that we need to be busy for Jesus. That's what grace tells us. Grace does not say we can just sit back and say, I am glad I'm saved. Thank you, Jesus. I'll just wait for you. It is instead motivating. I want to do things for the one who has done so much for me. I should be able to look at my life and see that I am helping people and meeting needs. That I am doing things for others that can be described as good and beneficial and blessing and helping and caring. That I can see that the things that I'm doing are like the things that Jesus did. It's not just that I abstain from certain things. It is instead that I pursue and actively do other good things. But what does that have to do with grace? I just really want to drive this point home. Grace should prompt gratitude. In fact, they are the same word. In English, they're the same root. In Greek, they're the same root. Grace should prompt gratitude. I do not act as if I owe Jesus and I want to pay him back. Instead, I am so overcome with the fact that I know where I've been and what I've done and what I deserve. But God reversed my story anyway. And so now the least I can do is quit doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff, is reflecting what Jesus has done for me. I become consumed with the question, what does Jesus want from me in this situation? How does the one who has blessed me want me to use my time and my energy and my money and my relationships? I was driving to uh, their wedding the other day, Tara and Juliana, and uh, it was raining, cats and dogs, and there were some puddles on the interstate, and I hit one, and there was a car in front of me, and I saw their brake lights. So I hit my brakes, and nothing happened. My car just kept flying forward, and so I thought I was going to hit them, so I turned the wheel to try to swerve around them into the other lane, and nothing happened. Turned the wheel, slammed the brakes, my car is just going straight into that other car. And after, uh, I, I think it was three or four seconds, it, it seemed like an hour, um, finally my wheels caught, and because I turned the wheel, I, I moved over quickly into the other lane, you know, very nearly swerved out of control. So I I just basically limped off the interstate after that. I finally got control of my car and got off. And, and 
you know, the, the emotions, even now I kind of get adrenalized thinking about what happened. Um, when you have an event like that, it, you feel thankful. You feel, um, wow, that, I should have had a serious accident that day. And, and yet, there's the question that, what, what do you do with that attitude, that feeling? That feeling, I, I'm thankful. I believe in God. I believe that in situations like that, for whatever reason, uh, God decided to help or spare or however you want to phrase that. But, but how do you act then? Do you just say, wow, that was a close one, and then keep on driving recklessly? That doesn't seem very grateful, right? Or to, to not ever entertain the question, you know, I wonder if I've been given some extra time here, what should I be doing with it? Do you hear those kinds of questions? That's the kind of question. When you receive a gift, it changes you. It's something that you should think about and work through. God spared me from my sins. Now, what does he want me to do with the time he's given me and the life that he's given me? All right, last thing. Uh, grace gives us humility and compassion. Look in chapter 3, Titus 3 and verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Notice that several of these have to do with how we interact with people, particularly in verse 2. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy to all people. But why do we act that way toward people? Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We know where we used to be, he says, and that changes the way we treat other people. So what changed in that, verse 4, is that grace appeared and God did something from us, for us. He saved us in spite of ourselves. He saved us from ourselves. So now we treat other people with courtesy and kindness and gentleness because we know what they are dealing with. If they are sinners, we relate. We have been sinners too. So this is another reason why it's important to learn the lesson of grace. Because grace means that we needed rescuing. Grace means that we don't deserve the blessings that we have. Grace teaches us not to view ourselves as better or worthy or even good. And when we lack humility and compassion, forgiveness, courtesy, it's because we've forgotten where we came from. We've forgotten that we ran up the tab of sin too. That sin had left a crimson stain on us that our sins were as scarlet. We've forgotten. And grace is what keeps us in mind of that, the constant memory of where we came from and what's been done for us. We can't grow in humility and compassion like we need to if we forget our past. So it might help. When we say things or we're tempted to say things like, I just don't understand how anybody could ever do blank, or when we begin to criticize people just because they are involved in sin and sometimes that takes them places that we, we just shake our heads and say, I don't know what they're thinking. Have we tried? Because I think we do relate to what people in sin are thinking and doing because we've been in sin. And it's important for us to remember that. That changes the conversation. Instead of it being me righteous, you wicked, it becomes me saved by the grace of Jesus. You haven't been saved yet. That's all. So instead, it lowers me where this is not about me being better. So grace teaches us humility and compassion. And I, I could talk about that all day. Uh, I don't have the time to do that. I, I just want to say this. I, I've been reading a lot 
lately on the relationships in the ancient world of patronage or what you would call like a patron uh, system where someone is a benefactor to someone else. And we don't relate to this at all because we are individualistic in our society and we don't like the idea of owing people favors. Don't you, don't you kind of recoil at that? Even in social things, you know, well, if I invite them, then, I mean, if they invite me and I go, then I have to invite them to my party, you know, and all that kind of thing. We don't like that network of commitments that come uh, because we have accepted someone's gift. But that was very common in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, when you received a gift, you had to be thankful, you had to be loyal, and you had to live in a way that respected what someone had given you. And all of those relate so well to grace. We have to be thankful to God. We have to be loyal to God. And we need to be sure we're living in a way that shows our honor for what's been done for us. So grace should change us. And my question to us is, are we appreciating the gift of God? Are we receiving it well? Thanks for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.